Lesson 3 for December 10-16, to A Matter of Life and Death. Sabbath afternoon, January 10. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you as we begin this lesson. We just want to thank you that you are the God who created the whole universe and created this earth and provided the, the way for each of us to live but also provided the way for each of us to have salvation. And as we open your word this week, as we look at some of the conundrums in Proverbs, that we may see your love, your goodness, your kindness. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 23. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law a light, Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Let's read that again, Proverbs 6.23. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life, Proverbs 6.23. Two brothers were left home alone, but given a strict warning by their mother to not eat the cake that she had just baked. To make sure that the boys would obey, she added the threat of punishment. When she left, it took the boys only a few minutes to decide to eat the cake anyway. This is not a matter of life and death, they reasoned. Our mother would never kill us, so let's eat. For the teacher in Proverbs, though, the issue he speaks about is indeed a matter of life and death. His language is strong and sometimes graphic. Of course, Jesus used very strong language himself when talking about matters of eternal life and death. Let's look at Matthew five twenty one to 30. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, If you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly, while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And... If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And no wonder, in the end, our ultimate destiny, our eternal destiny, and what could be more important than that, rests upon the choices that we make here, now. So, we should take the urgency of the strong language at face value.
Sunday, January 11, The Law in Our Lives Question. Read Proverbs chapter 6, verse 21 and chapter 7, verse 3. How are we to understand the bodily images used in these texts regarding how we should relate to God's law? Well, first of all, Proverbs 6.21, Bind them continually upon your heart, tie them around your neck. And chapter 7, verse 3, Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. As we saw in the earlier lesson in Proverbs, the heart represents the seat of emotions and thoughts. By telling us to bind the law upon our hearts, in verse 21, the teacher means that we should always be in close connection with the law. There is no moment we may lose contact with the law because the law is what defines sin, as it says in Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. The teacher also insists that this law should even be written on the tablets of the heart, as we read in verse seven, chapter 7, verse 3, just as the Decalogue was written by God on the stone tablets. To speak about the law written on the heart means that the law is not just an external set of rules imposed on us. The law should penetrate our motivations, our secret intentions, and so be part of our intimate self. It's another expression of having the Pauline promise of Christ in you, the hope of glory, as he wrote in Colossians 1.26, and have it be a reality in our lives. To tie the law around the neck also means that we should keep it close to ourselves. Ancient people used to tie their precious belongings around their necks. The neck is the place through which air travels to the lungs, allowing breath and life, an association of thoughts that is attested in the Greek word nephish or soul, which refers to life and is derived from a word meaning throat and breathing. To bind the law on one's fingers means to bring the law into the domain of actions. The teacher focuses on the fingers to suggest the most delicate and intimate actions. The law should affect not only the grand choices we make, but the smaller ones as well, as we read in Luke 16.10, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Although the biblical intention of these images was purely symbolic, it is noteworthy that these symbols have been taken literally in Jewish, Christian and Muslim traditions. It is seen through the use of the Jewish tefillin around the head and the fingers, the Christian crosses around the neck, and the Muslim and Christian rosaries around the fingers. So to finish the day, symbols can be helpful, but why must we be careful not to mistake the symbol for the reality it represents. Monday, January 12, Light and Life. Question. Read Proverbs chapter 623. How is the law related to light? 
Proverbs 6.23, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. In the Bible, the word of God, or the law, has been compared to light. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, it says in Psalm 119, verse 105. In the Hebrew mind, there is a connection between the idea of law and of light. Just as the lamp illuminates the path where we walk, the law will help us stay on track. That is, when we face moral choices, it will help us to know what the right choice is, even if at times reason or personal expedience would tempt us to disregard the law. And here's a question without a text. What examples can you find in the Bible of those who chose to follow God's law despite powerful reasons not to? What can we learn about their obedience? In what cases, if any, did their choice to be faithful seem to be the wrong one, at least from a human perspective? Well, I guess there was Joseph, and there was Daniel, and there was Abraham. I'll leave you to think about who you would pick from the Bible who chose to follow God's law despite powerful reasons not to. Another question. Along with Proverbs 6.23, read Proverbs 7, verse 2. Well, 6.23 read, For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Proverbs 7, verse 2 reads, Keep my commandments and live, and my law as the apple of your eye. Since the fall, our hope for eternal life cannot be found in the law, but only through faith in Christ. However, obedience to the law and the principles it represents continues to play a central part in the life of faith, as we read in Matthew 19 and verse 17. So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. But if you want to enter into life... Keep the commandments. And of course, there's Revelation 14, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We obey because, as the Lord said to Israel thousands of years ago, in Leviticus 18:4, I am the Lord your God. The law of God related to life, simply because of who God is, the source of our life. This principle represents true spirituality. We trust God and his promises for our present life, just as we trust his promises for eternal life. So to finish the day, Jesus said in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. How have you experienced the reality of this wonderful promise in your walk with the Lord? Tuesday, January 13, Fighting Temptation As we've just seen, the author of Proverbs 6.23, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, directly links light and life to God's law. 
In the next verse, he gives a solid example of how the law, as light and life, can offer us powerful spiritual protection. Question, what are we being warned about in Proverbs 6.24? Besides the obvious, what more subtle warning is given here? Proverbs 6.24, to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. When a religious person is tempted, the greatest temptation is to find a religious reason to justify the iniquity. Using God to rationalise bad behaviour is not only a terrible form of blasphemy, it's powerfully deceptive. After all, if someone thinks that God is with me, then what can you say in reply? This can happen even in cases of adultery. God has shown me that this man or woman is the one I should be with. If that's what they believe, who or what can trump what God has shown them? Notice, too, it's not just her physical beauty that allures him. She uses language, flattering words, to draw the victim into her trap. How often have men and women been led into compromising situations by subtle and seductive words, sometimes even couched in religious language. The author of the book of Proverbs speaks to warn us against this deception. The law is the perfect antidote against the flattering tongue of a seductress. Only the imperative of the law and the duty of obedience will help us resist her alluring words, which can sound so true and beautiful. Indeed, the seductress will find you not only handsome, but also wise and bright. She may also evoke her spiritual needs, and ironically, dangerously, the love of God might become the justification for sin. So to finish the day, just think how easily we can be led, even under the guise of faith, to justify wrong actions of any kind, not just adultery. Why, then, is an absolute commitment to the law of God our only real protection against even our own minds and the tricks that they can play on us? Wednesday, January 14, you shall not steal. Right after his warning about adultery in Proverbs 6, 24 to 29, the author starts talking about another sin, stealing. Let's read 6, 24 to 29. To keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress, do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes in to his neighbour's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent." The relationship between the two commandments, stealing and adultery, shows how disobedience to one commandment can affect our obedience to the others. The attitude of compromise, to pick and choose in regard to God's law, could be even more dangerous than complete disobedience to the law. 
Ellen White writes in Education, page 150, The strongest bulwark of vice in our world is not the iniquitous life of an abandoned sinner or the degraded outcast. It is that life which otherwise appears virtuous, honourable and noble, but in which one sin is fostered, one vice indulged. He who, endowed with high concepts of life and truth and honour, does yet willfully transgress one precept of God's holy law, has perverted his noble gifts into a lure to sin. Question. Read Proverbs 6, verse 30 and 31. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving, yet when he is found he must restore sevenfold he may have to give up all the substance of his house. Poverty and needs do not justify stealing. The thief is guilty even if he is starving, as it said in verse 30. Although the starving thief is not to be despised, he must still restore seven times what he has stolen. This shows that even the desperateness of his situation does not justify sin. On the other hand, the Bible insists that it is our duty to meet the needs of the poor, so that they don't feel compelled to steal in order to survive. We read about this in Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 to 8. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within within any of the gates in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. How interesting that after going from adultery to stealing, the text now returns to adultery in chapter 6, verses 32 to 35. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonour he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. The two sins are indeed somewhat similar. In both cases, someone is illicitly taking something that belongs to someone else. A crucial difference, however, between stealing and adultery lies in the fact that the former sin concerns only the loss of an object, while the latter deals with something much greater. In some cases, one can make restitution for stealing an object. In the cases of adultery, especially when children are involved, the damage can be much more severe than when stealing is involved. Ellen White writes in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 308, Thou shalt not commit adultery. This commandment forbids not only acts of impurity, but sensual thoughts and desires, or any practice that tends to excite them. Christ, who taught the far-reaching obligation of the law of God, declared the evil thought or look to be just as truly sin as is the unlawful deed.
Thursday, January 15, the threat of death. Most people don't think of death when they sin. They have other things on their minds, usually the immediate gratification and pleasure that they derive from their sin. It doesn't help either that popular culture often extols adultery and other iniquities. In contrast, the book of Proverbs places sin in the right perspective, a view echoed many years later by Paul in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Question. Read Proverbs chapter 7 verses 22 and 23. What makes the adulterer vulnerable to the threat of death? Beginning at verse 22, immediately he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks. Till an arrow struck his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. The one who goes after her is described as someone who has lost his personality and will. He is no longer thinking. The word immediately suggests that he does not give himself time for much reflection. He is compared to an ox who goes to the slaughter, to a fool who goes to the correction of the stocks, and to a bird who hastens to the snare. None of them realise that their life is threatened. Question. Read Proverbs chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. What makes the immoral woman lethal? Verse 26. For she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. It's possible that the woman here depicts more than a mere adulterer. In fact, she represents values opposite to wisdom. Solomon uses this metaphor to warn his pupil against any form of evil. The risk is huge, for this woman does not just wound, she kills, and her power is such that she has slain even the strongest of men. In other words, others before you, stronger than you, have not been able to survive in her hands. The universal language of this passage clearly suggests that the biblical author is speaking about humankind in general. The Hebrew word Sheol in the text has nothing to do with hell. As commonly thought, it designates the place where the dead now are, the grave. In the end, the point is that sin, whether adultery or something else, leads to annihilation, the opposite of the eternal life that God wants us all to have through Jesus Christ. No wonder, as we said in Sabbath's introduction, the language is strong. We are dealing literally with matters of life and death. So to finish the day, think of some strong people who have fallen in a big way. Why should this make you tremble for yourself? What is your only protection? Friday, January 16. From Testimonies for the Church, Volume 4, page 495, I read, Satan offers to men the kingdoms of the world if they will yield to him the supremacy. Many do this and sacrifice heaven. 
It is better to die than to sin, better to want than to defraud, better to hunger than to lie. And then, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 147. Choose poverty, reproach, separation from friends, or any suffering, rather than to defile the soul with sin. Death before dishonour, or the transgression of God's law, should be the motto of every Christian. As a people professing to be reformers, treasuring the most solemn, purifying truths of God's word, we must elevate the standard far higher than it is at the present time. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. Actually, there are four. Number one, how can we be serious about the gravity of sin without falling into the trap of fanaticism? At the same time, how can we be obedient to the law of God without falling into legalism? Question 2. Read Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 to 17. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour, you shall not covet your neighbour's house, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbour's. How are all the Ten Commandments related to each other? Why, if we openly violate one commandment, are we likely to transgress other commandments as well? Let's look at James chapter 2, verse 11. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. What examples can you find in which transgression of one commandment has led to the transgression of others? Question 3. Dwell more on the idea of how people might use religion in order to justify wrong actions. It's not that hard to do, especially if you tend to hold up love as the ultimate standard of right and wrong. After all, think about all the bad things done under the pretext of love. How then does the law continue to act as a way of protecting people, either from themselves or others, who might otherwise be led into sin? 
And question four. Look again at the question of the end of Sunday study, which deals with mistaking symbols for reality. How might we do that? For example, how might idolatry be one way of doing this? What traditions which are symbols of spiritual truths could be mistaken for those truths themselves? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled This Isn't Yogi Bear. Being from the tropical country of Puerto Rico, Paola never dreamed that she would end up in the wilds of Alaska. It's just so out there, Paola says. It's one of those places that you're never going to go to because it's so far away. But when the recruiting team from the Alaska Conference came to Walla Walla University in Washington State looking for summer camp staff, Paola decided to check it out. She was hired and that summer she found herself lifeguarding on the shores of Lake Alkegnik at Camp Polaris. It was nothing like I expected, Paola admits. I pictured snow and igloos, but it was gorgeous and green. In addition to the natural beauty, Paola experienced other surprises. During orientation, the staff were warned that bears frequented the camp. We were instructed that these bears aren't like Yogi Bear, a friendly children's cartoon character, Paola remembers. But even though we were warned, a lot of us were still thinking, it's just a bear. One day, Paola noticed a bear coming into camp. Wanting a picture, she quickly grabbed her camera and looked down as she walked toward the lake. Looking up, she suddenly froze. Directly in front of her was a grizzly bear. Everything stopped. I couldn't hear anything. Everyone else was in the lodge. No one could see me. The bear was frozen too. The only thought I had was, this isn't Yogi. Suddenly, the grizzly headed toward a garbage container, and Paola moved quickly back into the lodge. Sometimes you don't know how bad something is until you come face to face with it, she says. Working at the camp opened her eyes in many ways, Paola admits. I realize that I'm not a kid anymore. These are the kids now, and I need to take care of them. Sometimes Paola found drawing the line of authority challenging. When there were issues, I learned to manoeuvre around the children, not making them feel unwelcome or inferior, but working with them in a way so that they could see they needed to stop their tantrums and come back with the others who were having fun. There had to be a certain amount of respect going on so that they would know you were the authority, but would feel still comfortable coming to you if they had any problems, especially spiritually. At Camp Polaris, there is a spiritual aspect to everything. Your reader for this week's lesson has been Dr. Percy Harold. This lesson is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is always faithful.